0: I'm excited to introduce our guest preacher this morning. Uh, Laura prayed just a few moments ago about the ministry colleagues from whom I received support. And Charlie Drew is one of those. Over the years, I received a lot of encouragement, wisdom, and friendship from Charlie. For many years, Charlie was a senior pastor of Emmanuel Presbyterian Church on the Upper West Side. Uh, He is retired, but it's hard to let a good man like Charlie go. So he's serving as interim pastor at Redeemer East Side. Uh, He has uh, done so and is returning this fall to do that. Fun fact about Charlie, he is an avid sailor. He told me this summer he's out in the water two to three times a week, um, which I can't imagine a better summer activity. And uh, so glad that he was willing to leave his sailboat and come to Montclair to preach this morning. And so we're so glad to have Charlie here. His wife Ginny is here as well and a family of friends. So Charlie, welcome. Great to have you.
1: Yeah, I, actually, I'm, in 15 minutes, I have to leave to go to the boat. So it's going to be a short sermon. Um, you know, it's, I haven't been here since before COVID, and I haven't seen your building, and I got a tour of it today. It is awesome. I mean, it's so wonderful that the Lord has provided you with this incredible space uh, the, all the screaming little people are back there, uh, and I, I, was, I was hearing them through the door. I don't hear them anymore, thankfully. Uh, <laughs> But it's just wonderful to see all the kids and the accommodation that you have made for the people, uh, for for one another, and for your children and for your youth, your young people as well. It's just wonderful. I'm going to read to you from uh, Matthew 22 and then Ephesians 5, a very interesting passage where Jesus talks about marriage going out the window when heaven comes. It's a weird one. It's weird, but I'll show you, hopefully at least something of what it means. Would you rise as I read the text? The same day Sadducees came to Jesus, to him, who who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us, the first married and died, and having no offspring left his wife to his brother so too the second and third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. And then Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish." This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. For some of you, the resurrection may be crazy. You may not believe in it, and I totally understand that. There are a lot of us in the world today who think the whole idea is ridiculous. I remember a conversation I had one day with a skeptical postdoc at University of Virginia who told me that the notion of the resurrection made no sense to him because the end game scenario it posed was absurd. And I said, what do you mean? He said, "Uh, there won't be enough atoms to go around. Uh, Think about it. When you die, your body disintegrates, and your atoms recycle, showing up in all sorts of places, including the bodies of people who come after you. Well, at at the resurrection, every human soul will be clamoring. Every human soul will be clamoring for a new body, the equivalent in atoms of the recent run on Silicon Valley Bank dollars. There simply won't be enough atoms to go around. Now the Sadducees, Lest we think that back there in the old day in, in those olden days everybody believed in resurrections. Not true. It was a problem for a lot of people in Jesus' day, just as much as it's a problem for us. Um, the Sadducees confront Jesus with a similar problem. Using a different framework, they use uh, they go to the same problem. They use a mosaic inheritance law in which the brother of a dead man marries his widow so that she can have children by his agency on behalf of the deceased. They likewise argue for the absurdity of the resurrection. In their case, at the resurrection, there won't be enough wives to go around. Maybe not enough Adams, but in their case, not enough wives. Now, Jesus challenges both arguments with a simple assertion in verse 29. You don't know the power of God. Now that challenge makes a great deal of sense to me, if you think about it. If God is real, and that's the question, that's the question behind the question. If God is real, real, objectively there, and not just uh, a projection of our needs and hopes, then it is reasonable to assume that he is not trapped in or trapped by the world that he happens to have made. If he chooses to stage an intervention from outside the social and physical cosmos that we know, then the scarcity of atoms and wives will not be a problem for him. He's big enough to handle it. The new creation, as Christopher Watkin puts it, is, quote, an intensification, an escalation, and an amplification of the old. Not, I would add, just a rearrangement of pre-existing materials. We ought not simply extrapolate from present limits, that's the problem with this argument, either of atoms or of spouses into God's bright new world and find reasons arising from those extrapolations for debunking the promise of a bright new world. The point is simply this, either God is real or he is not. It's that simple. And if he is real, resurrections with all the other things that float around them aren't really a problem for him. Now what does all that I just said, what does the coming resurrection, I just put a little plug in for, mean for our present relationships? What does the future have to do with the present? The New Testament does that a lot, you know, by the way. It takes the future and it reads the future back into the present and says, this is what life can be like and should be like in the light of what's coming. So, what does the the coming resurrection mean for our present relationships? Well, it shifts our thinking about marriage with implications for all of our relationships. Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 30, "...for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like angels in heaven." Now, what is Jesus saying? What is he saying in that statement? He's not saying that there would be no relational continuity between then and now. Jesus said to the repentant thief just before they both died in Luke chapter 23, this day you will be together with me in paradise, making clear that passing from this world to the next will not obliterate personal connections made in this world. Rather, Jesus is saying that God's power will change relationships because by it he is going to change us in some dramatic way. We're going to become like angels in heaven. We'll all have wings and float around on clouds. Isn't that exciting? Not if you're a teenager, I promise you. It certainly wasn't exciting for me. No. This cannot mean that we will be disembodied. After all, he's talking here about the resurrection, and resurrection means re-embodiment. Not spirituality floating away in the stratosphere, but re-embodiment, re-embodied life. Uh, But he means rather, when he says we'll be like angels, we'll no longer be mortal no longer needing for one thing to procreate to keep the human race going. Nor can becoming like angels mean that we will cease loving. No, to the contrary, love will blossom, will come into its own as we take on the moral beauty of the angelic world. We will be like angels in that regard. C.S. Lewis invites us to imagine what is coming in the sermon he preached called The Weight of Glory. He says it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and the most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now you would be strongly tempted to worship a creature of great stunning moral beauty of great astonishing love now let me tell you what i don't know about what i have just said what i just sort of indicated the future is going to look like. I don't know how the Lord will help us navigate the Sadducees problem. There's a lot I don't know and here's one of the things. In the case for example of a woman who marries after her first husband dies. If my wife Jeannie, if I die, my wife Jeannie marries somebody else, what's our relationship going to be like when that comes? But I'm sure of this, that the one who gave himself so fully to us in his incarnation, And in his death, will work things out to everybody's satisfaction. So there's no relational confusion or disappointment. After all, 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor have our minds been able to conceive what God has in store for those who love him. And what he has in store is really, 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 really good. Satisfying beyond our wildest dreams. Now, let me try to get practical. Um, What more specifically does the absence of marriage as we know it, in God's new order, mean for our present relationships, for the relationships you have with each other, uh, uh, that you would have with me, you have with Dan, you have with one another, and you have in your families and so on. And I'm gonna just say one thing. I'm gonna spin it out a little bit, but I'm just gonna say one thing. It means that we don't let marriage get in the way of love. In other words, we don't make an idol out of marriage. To paraphrase John Bettler, a counselor, marriage is a good good, but it is a bad God. It will not last because it is not in its present form what we were made for. Love is what we were made for, not marriage. Now, let me say a word about this first to the singles in the group. And then a word about this to the married people in the group, and I think that will cover everybody. Uh, You tell me if I'm missing anybody. First of all, a word to the singles. Now, some of you are single and are happy to be so, and some of you are single and are not happy to be so. To the first group, all well and good, as long as your singleness is not a form of escape from community. It's not a carte blanche for withdrawing into yourself, No. Community has to happen if you're single or you're married. To the second group, I'm going to say a bit more. For those of you who are single and wish you were not, um, your desire to find a life partner or to find a new life partner if you are divorced or widowed is legitimate and it is in fact God-given. We aren't in the new order yet, where there's no giving or receiving in marriage. We can trace that desire back to Genesis 2, where we read that it's not good for us to be alone. It is not, in other words, unspiritual to desire to be married. It can, however, and this is my point, become all-consuming. It can become a form of idolatry, arising from the mistaken notion that marriage is somehow ultimate, that it will integrate everything for us, or a new marriage will integrate everything for us, that it will erase loneliness, that it will be the true home that we are longing for. I promise you, it will not be that. It won't do that. Marriage can, in fact, be terribly lonely and you may be in a very lonely marriage right now or you may have been in one. Um, Some of you may be in one right now. I remember a heartbreaking conversation I had once with a young husband. He confessed that he was achingly lonely in his marriage despite the fact that there was nothing on the surface that gave any evidence of the problem. The point is that marriage is not our true home. God is our true home. And as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Whom I, uh, Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing I desire on earth beside you. You are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, here's some advice to those of you who would like to be married um, don't or like to be re- re- remarried. Don't let your desire to be married or married again. Get in the way of loving the friends that you actually have right now. Wanting too much to be married, always being on the lookout for a life partner can short-circuit actual living by blinding us to the relationships that God has at the moment set before us. There will always be somebody to love in your life. Always there will be somebody to love. Somebody at work, or at school, or at church, or in the neighborhood, or in your extended family. And by loving that person, we will get a taste of what we are really after in our desire to be married. We will be participating in a preliminary way in the new order for which God made us and for whose creation he died, rose, and prays. And let me just add one other thing. As we focus on the actual people who are presently in our lives, We can be particularly on the lookout for friends who do not look like us. Since one of the wonders of God's new social order is that it will be like the UN, only much, much better, much more satisfying, interesting, and diverse. Tim Keller writes, There are now six times more Anglicans in Nigeria alone than there are in all of the United United States. There are more Presbyterians in Ghana than in the United States and Scotland combined. South Korea has gone from 1% to 40% Christian in 100 years, and experts believe the same thing is going to happen in China. So make your cross-cultural relationships, whether you're married or not, count in anticipation of what is coming. Now, I'm still talking to singles. Um, Let me just say uh, zero in on a particular category of unmarried, and that is those of you who are contemplating an actual marriage. Those of you who have somebody pretty seriously on the hook, you are, are of course, free to take the marital plunge uh, with that person, and you're also free not to. There's no law telling you what you must or must not do. There's no Bible text that's going to tell you that this is the one. Uh, If someone tells you that, they're not speaking honestly or truthfully or biblically to you. It doesn't work that way. There's only the requirement that he or she shares your faith if you're a Christian, and then you're free to make a choice, to make a plunge. Now, here's a bit of advice. If you're gonna plan to go ahead into that kind of a relationship, don't plan On fixing the other person. Don't be like 16-year-old Kim McAfee in that Broadway musical Bye Bye Birdie who sings just pick out a boy and train him and then when you are through you've made him the man you want him to be. How lovely to be a woman like me. That's just lousy thinking and I promise you it won't work. Be wary, to put the matter another way, of the checklist approach to this thing. There is no ideal partner out there, and those of you who are married know it. (laughs) At least your spouse knows it. Uh, uh, You will always be disappointed about something in the other person, and they will always be disappointed in you in some way. If you haven't seen anything disappointing yet, you haven't been looking very carefully. (laughs) Holding out for the ideal partner can short circuit the sort of growth that only comes with commitment to an actual imperfect human being. John Mason, in his book, Mystery of Marriage, uh, his description of the dynamics of married life points to the healthy stretching that we miss out on if we never take the marital plunge or don't stick with the marital plunge we've made. He writes this, a marriage or a marriage partner may be compared to a great tree growing right up through the center of one's living room. It is something that is just there, and it is huge, and everything has been built around it, and wherever one happens to be going, to the fridge, to bed, to the bathroom, to the front door, the tree has to be taken into account. It cannot be gone through. It must be respectfully gone around. It is somehow bigger and stronger than oneself. Now true, he writes, it could be chopped down, but not without tearing the whole house apart. And certainly it is beautiful, unique, exotic, but also let's face it, it is at times an enormous inconvenience to be married is to enter into a relationship that is full of inconveniences. It's full of a lot of lovely things as well, but it's inconvenient to have this other being there all the time in your life, in your face. But it's this very inconvenience of the tree. This very inconvenience of the 24-7 presence of the other that breaks us out of our deeply embedded, unhealthy, and ultimately destructive self-absorption. And that is a very, very good thing. That's a good thing. It's the right sort of preparation for the social reality that is coming in God's new order. Okay, married people. I'm finally getting to you, though you can probably have picked up a few ideas from what I've said to the single people. Um, Here's my word to those of you who are married. Uh, Don't let your vision of marriage get in the way of loving the actual person that you happen to be married to. Romantic literature and films, and very often marriage seminars, I've been to some of them, can threaten our real marriages by encouraging us to ignore or diminish or even run away from the sometimes crass, sometimes boring, sometimes needy, sometimes obnoxious, sometimes cruel, sometimes thoughtless, sometimes irrelevant person to whom we are actually married. The one, it turns out, that God has actually given to us in marriage. We don't marry abstractions. Nor are we married to being married. We are married to that person. You know, look across the pew. No, don't. It'll be embarrassing. But you're married that if that person is with you, you're married to that person, not some other, not some fantasy, and to the adventure in discovery, coping, patience, and enjoyment that that person represents, for better or for worse for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death parts us. Not, as I once heard, for as long as our love shall last. Don't ever say that vow. That is a pathetic, mealy-mouthed vow. There's no muscle in it. You need a more substantive, vow. you need the traditional vow. We need those, because that vow is realistic about the life that we enter into. We don't marry abstractions, but real people. Now, please, i got to say something very important at this point. I don't mean to minimize in any way how heartbreaking and even abusive your marriage might actually be right now, how abusive and heartbreaking it can be, nor am I suggesting that, th- suggesting that there are no legitimate grounds for ending a marriage. There are legitimate biblical grounds for ending a marriage. If your marriage is in trouble, don't put on a nice Christian face and pretend that it isn't. Talk to Dan, get help, work on it, don't pretend, don't just put up with it. But having said that, I am eager to encourage all the married people among us to fight for our marriages, for our real marriages by letting go of our fantasy spouses and receiving from God's hands, with thanks, the real spouse that he's actually given to us. Now think of the deep value of this approach to being married. When you love your actual partner, you get to be like God. You get to be God-like. God has never once, never once loved people in general. That's not how his love works. When we say God so loved the world, we don't mean that he loves some aggregate that we call humankind. We mean rather that he loved all sorts of people from all over the place in the fullness of their particularities and struggles and sins and strengths and so on, and still does. When Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus, he didn't simply cry, come forth. He called his friend by name. He said, Lazarus, come forth. When he appeared to Mary on Resurrection Day, he called her by her name. Mary, one of the most beautiful statements that he ever made. Uh, and when he greets us at the final reckoning, we are told that he will give to those of us who have hung in there with him a white stone with a new name written on it. Name means identity, a new name, particular identity, a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it, and of course, the one who gives it. God loves particular people he has never loved an abstraction he loves you in your particularity all that stuff some of which is lovely and wonderful and great and some of which is pretty awful the whole package he knows you and he loves you that's the way it works and he expects us to do so as well not a dream not a soul mate whatever that is I don't know what a soulmate is. It sounds really great, I, but I have no idea what it is. It's just a feel-good kind of word. You love a person, <laughs> even if they don't feel like a soulmate, whatever that is, at the moment. We love actual people. Now, I'm coming to the end, and the last thing I'm gonna say is short of everything I said so far, but this is the most important thing. Don't miss this, okay? I I am not to make you stand up, but actually you've got air conditioning, so I think you're still awake. Um, um, (laughs) There is a startling and lovely reality embedded in Jesus's words about the end of marriage as we know it. And here it is, here's what it is. We will not marry each other in God's new order because we will be married together to him. That's what that Hosea passage that was read talks about, and certainly it's what Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, which is the second passage I read. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, make her holy, make her beautiful, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in marriage, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish." What's Paul saying? God has come to us to make us his bride. He desires us in that sense. And so committed is he to that outcome that he did all that was necessary through the enormous inconvenience, and that's not nearly a strong enough word, the enormous inconvenience of joining us here as one of us, for 30-odd years living fully out a human life and then enduring his terrible suffering at the end, all for the purpose of making you and me worth marrying. (laughs) All for the purpose of making us, uh, of cleansing us of all that is not yet what it should be and to make us stunningly beautiful, morally splendid, without blemish, that's the language. And the result is, a marriage between him and us, a marriage which is both like and unlike the really good marriages that we know here. There's intimacy and safety, you know, a lot of times you don't get both. You get safety but no intimacy or you get intimacy but no safety. You can be utterly, you can risk yourself in the marriage to God because you're safe. He knows everything anyway. (laughs) You don't have to hide anything. Intimacy and safety, also laughter and joy. Do you think there's any laughter? There's no laughter in your relationship to God, none. Because God is very serious. God has no sense of humor. The guy who made the duck-billed platypus has no sense of humor. God laughs. Have you ever thought about that? He loves a good joke. Dan read that, C.S. Lewis said that, and it's true. He didn't love dirty jokes, but he loves really good jokes. Uh, he, Friendship exhilaration, all, only in a, God, God intends for us to have in our relationship with him, all of the best things we have in good human relationships, in a good human marriage, only much better. Far more wonderful and satisfying. Um, There is something astonishing in this marriage story, it is a marriage story. Every, Every marriage story that we know, our own and the ones we see in the movies, actually are there as placards from God to point away from themselves to another one, to a better one, to the fuller one the one that he has for us. And there's something very astonishingly amazing when you think about that marriage story, the ultimate marriage story, and it's this. God doesn't just love us like a father. God desires us like a lover. Not a libidinous, out of control, erotic teenager, no. But don't short sell the language of the Bible when it talks about God loving us for marriage. It's that kind of love. When I first met Jeannie, the girl who became the woman I later married, I liked her. I liked her right away. I wanted to know her better. And I wanted her to know me better. Our first lengthy conversation went on for three hours as we shared each other's stories and thoughts and interests. When God speaks of marrying us, not just sort of on a one-off way in Paul in Ephesians 5, but in John and in Hosea and in Isaiah and other biblical writers, he invites us to see an analogy here. Not a perfect analogy, but a very real analogy. Um, Genies and my mutual interest in each other is a little bit like the mutual interest that God intends for our relationship with him. Now, of course, Our relationship with God is more than that. After all, he's God. (laughs) But it is not less than that. And that's what I want you to see. And it isn't just future. And here's the amazing, one of the many amazing things about what I've been trying to communicate. Because Jesus, the bridegroom, who is coming again to fetch us, is alive and with us now. And he's in us now. He's joining in the laughter. He's making us safe, even as he's intimate with us. It isn't just future. Um, He's with us. God's bright new arrangement has begun. The resurrection has already begun in principle. But, and here's the very last thing I'm going to say, you and I have an obligation to welcome this relationship. God is not going to force it. What kind of Presbyterian am I to say that? I'm a faithful Presbyterian. God's sovereignty does not obliterate human agency. God weeps over Jerusalem because of Jerusalem's choice to push him away. God weeps over you because of your choice to push him away. If you do, don't do it. Welcome the one who welcomes you. We love because he first loved us. We don't not love because he first loved us. We love him back. So do that. And I'm done, but I'm going to pray for us. And I wish you'd join me in prayer. I'm going to pray along the lines of this welcoming business, receiving him. Let's pray. Lord, how amazing, how amazing it is that you actually desire us We can't believe this and we wonder at it, but it's what you tell us. Forgive us, Lord, for pushing you away by not receiving well enough the actual people you have put into our lives who represent you to us. Forgive us as well for pushing you away by making the people you have given us more important than you are. And console us in our loss of all of those by whom you have loved us well and are now no longer with us. You are our true, lasting, and satisfying home, our bridegroom. We welcome you now and always. Amen.